Welcome to the second of our two-part Ideal Portfolio podcast. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and in part two of this podcast, we're going to take a look behind the curtain at how asset managers put together their own portfolios and make tactical asset allocation decisions. I'm joined in the studio today by Alan Miller, founder of online discretionary manager SCM Direct, and later I'll be joined on the line by Rory McPherson, Head of Investment Strategy at P Sigma. But first, to you, Alan. Some wealth managers take quite a rigid approach to asset allocation and will have a very strict model of how their portfolios are divided between uh, equities, bonds and other assets. Do you have core allocation rules you use for your lower and higher risk portfolios? Well, we we have a, a absolute return portfolio and a long-term return and they tend to differ that the, the long-term tends to have a higher percentage in equities. But we specifically... And it's typically 70% plus in equities in that portfolio, and it's typically 50% plus in the absolute return. But we deliberately do not have a fixed percentage because we think it's important to uh, be flexible to opportunities and valuations rather than simply have a percentage in an asset which could be at certain points in time grossly overvalued so that makes no sense to us at all what determines how you do allocate and when you shift in and out of particular asset classes what determines the way we work is based on fundamental valuations and also on other kind of factors for example money flows going in or out of an asset class because that gives you a good guide to the levels of optimism or pessimism and quite often when assets are close to their peak or bottom tend to quite often be at the same time as when there's been a huge record amounts either going in or record amounts kind of going out of an asset class. I'm always surprised by companies that say they have a asset allocation meeting specifically once a month because surely you'd be looking opportunities the whole time and there may be months where a lot of opportunities arise and you make a lot of changes and there may be many other months when you do absolutely nothing so we're always looking and we're always reviewing and so in a way it's a kind of it's a constant process but you often i think if you look at kind of fund managers successful they're always considering possibilities and reviewing them but that doesn't mean they they actually put them into place because it, it may not be that there's the potential kind of valuation and and return and or it may not be balanced by by risk or the cost and the beauty of investing via etfs is that they tend to be incredibly low cost they tend to be incredibly well spread and you can actually see what's inside the etfs in full and therefore make, I believe, a much better informed decision than you can in many other instruments. So if you're deciding, well, actually, I think I want to have a larger exposure to emerging markets, then rather than try and play some particular theme or factor, I think it's better to kind of start from a basis of having, if you like, as your core, a a well-spread, diversified um, index in that market and then decide whether actually you want to tilt in one direction to another whether it be in growth stocks or value stocks or small cap or large cap or or other particular factors i think it's always better to actually have a bias rather than if you like kind of invest solely in one particular theme or category 
Okay. Um, and we should say that you, you only use ETFs, don't you? So yeah, we're 100% ETFs. Where do you think we are in the market cycle and how are you feeling in terms of being more risk-hungry or, or more defensive in your allocation? I think if you kind of take a kind of very high-level view, you have to say that the bull market has lasted a long period of time. You have had, if you like, one of the greatest financial experiments of quantitative easing and and other mechanisms and therefore it does make sense to be cautious whenever you're investing and evaluating opportunities because at some point in time we're bound to see some form of correction we haven't seen major corrections for for a long period but necessarily there will be some and and people say they can predict them in advance but very few people can actually predict them in advance. So therefore, I think actually it is important to be uh, diversified as as one um, risk reduction measure and another to look at the risk of individual assets. For example, within that, there's a lot of managers have large exposures to high-yield junk bonds. Well, if you actually look back to the credit crunch of last time, that that asset category fell 40% plus. So you might consider, well, actually you're investing in a low-risk bond fund, but if they're investing in a, a large exposure to high-yield junk, where yields have been kind of the margins of uh, yield margins have fallen considerably over many years the risk is that if there is some kind of fallout that those junk bonds could actually fall considerably just because they're called a bond doesn't mean they're they're low risk in your lower risk portfolio you don't have any exposure whatsoever to us stocks so why is that is that something that you think is a bubble the reason simply is that we believed actually you could get more bang for your buck essentially by investing in other markets over the US. It doesn't mean necessarily US can't carry on going up. It just meant we, we thought actually for that asset category of investing in equities, we'd rather invest in other markets like emerging markets or Japan or kind of more recently Europe than the US. What valuation metrics do you use to value stocks? And, and also what would you say to to the assertion made by some that these new kind of tech stocks or the FANG stocks, you know, yes. Facebook, Netflix, whatever, that actually those don't really, you can't really value those using the traditional metrics yes. just because of the their new business models. Yes, well, the last time I remember hearing that same argument on um, you shouldn't look at traditional valuation models was actually describing tech stocks and just at the peak of the tech tech boom and uh, I think in finance normally when you can't justify something then you have to invent a new way of valuing it and uh, if people with a long memory remember kind of at one point during the internet tech boom you were valuing stocks on what's called a price per pop so it didn't matter whether they ever made any money all that matters is they had lots of customers even if the customers never paid them a penny and I think if you look objectively at some of these Fang stocks, the valuations look extremely rich. It doesn't mean that the companies can't carry on growing, but you can have periods of time in markets where basically the share price has to kind of grow into the valuation and the share price could well just do nothing for years whilst the companies are growing spectacularly simply because the, the valuation has to kind of gradually come down over time. Which metrics do you use when you're weighing up stocks, risk against reward? Well, we, we believe in the old-fashioned valuation criteria 
are when you're looking at individual stocks or markets of equities to look at um, the projected earnings growth, to look at the price earnings ratio, to look at the price cash flow, to look at the price sales, to look at price to book value. And obviously, markets will be different, uh, depends on, you know, which particular sectors or which particular areas. But we believe in looking at a number of measures rather than one on its own. But also, these are these are tried and tested fundamental uh, valuation measures rather than, if you like to use my example, of a price per pop or some other metric which some investment banker has managed to come up with to justify the float of the next tech stock. So let's talk about an area which you do obviously think is good kind of reward for risk, and that's emerging markets and also emerging markets small cap, which you do hold in your lower risk portfolio. I think most people would hear emerging markets small cap and think very high risk. Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the great advantages of investing in index funds is actually small cap, because if you think about it, over very long periods of time, small companies have delivered higher returns than larger companies for a large number of different reasons. But partly, simply, it's easier to grow from a smaller size than a very, very large one, partly because historically their valuations have been lower. So you've had, you've had higher earnings growth and you've bought it on a cheaper valuation. Now, the great advantage of investing in an index fund is you reduce the individual small company risk because obviously when small companies disappoint or go wrong, your potential downside is much greater than it is on a large company. But then if you invest in a large basket of small companies, you're reducing that risk considerably. So you, ha- you get the growth, you get the valuation, but you massively reduce the individual stock risk. Small cap against large has been uh, a thing that you've tilted towards frequently. And you did mention value there as well. Now, you said that you're tilting a bit more towards value generally in your more adventurous well, portfolio. In the, in the US in particular, because as, as you rightly uh, point out, you know, the FANG stocks are not particularly value. I mean, it's interesting. I've seen in various value indexes, Apple computers. Now, it was only a year or two ago that Apple was on a P rating about eight times, and now it's on about 18 or 19 times. Um, so I can't quite understand why Apple would be in a value index now. I can understand it going back a year, but why should it be in those indexes today? The way we look at it, it does, in a way, it doesn't matter what it says on the label, it's looking at what's inside it, looking at the stocks or bonds that are inside it and looking at the valuations of it and how concentrated it is and what those multiples are. So what kind of ETFs, for example, do you hold um, expressing that US value? Well, in, in the US, it's, uh, there's a PowerShares, uh, Rafi, which invests in a, approximately a 1,000 stocks in the US. And if you look at the list of names, you'll recognise those names, but it will have a different percentage to a traditional market cap weighted S&P 500 index. It still does have a reasonable exposure to tech, but a a lower exposure than you'd expect in an S&P 500 US fund. Thanks, Alan. And now I'm joined on the line by Rory McPherson, Head of Investment Strategy at Peace Sigma, to take a look at their own slightly more rule-based approach to asset allocation and talk a bit about allocating to bonds. What approach do you take to asset allocation? So how how detailed is the breakdown that you use of equities, bonds, etc.? So we break it out across 11 different core asset classes that we all think have distinct characteristics and then weight between which we think are the most attractive parts within those different asset classes, depending on where we are on the economic cycle. So looking at things like valuations within each asset class, 
what's the business cycle like that's going to support growth within that and then you know importantly for kind of timing decisions where is money flowing to and how are assets behaving how are prices traveling okay and how regularly are you reviewing that so it's continuous. So on a tactical basis, you know, we're not, we're certainly not day traders. We're not trading every day, but on a daily basis, we update all of our sentiment models where we're looking at what the technicals are telling us. So is an asset class getting too frothy? Is it getting overbought? Is it getting oversold? Is there too much hot money flowing into it or the other way around? All of these types of things act to us as contrarian signals. So these tend to be things that we watch and then build up and it will manifest depending on the environment, perhaps two or three changes in a quarter, switching between the various asset classes. We call it sentiment, but it's really timing signals. When we think of market sentiment, it's really the mood of the market. So you know, it might be how bullish are people? Are they borrowing money to buy stocks? That might be one thing we look at. Are they crowding into um, more risky assets? So risky parts of equities versus you know what's viewed as safe assets like government bonds perhaps and then what what are risk levels like in in markets are people taking more risk or is risk very low so all of these sorts of things build together as part of our sentiment models what balance would you say that you use between quantitative tools and, and kind of more qualitative measures when you're assessing this stuff yeah i would say it's it's probably a mix between the two about 50 50 so the quantitative stuff definitely helps us keep track you know when we're looking at 11 different asset classes and there's probably about 30 different sub asset classes between that so you know within an equity asset class we'd look at small and large caps and value and growth and all that sort of stuff it helps to have quantitative models to track that and just give you very quick alerts if you like you know when you get in in the morning saying is it you know is something like a green light is it looking like something you should be buying or a red light is it something you should be looking like you should sell so work on that sort of traffic light type system but then of course it's overlaid by qualitative assessment for those sorts of things that i mentioned which are slightly more long term like where are we in the business cycle what's the economic cycle like where do we think earnings are going and all of that sort of stuff that's important for establishing where you think returns are headed over the next you know six to 18 months which is really the sort of time frame we're looking at when we're making these tactical decisions do you have rules about how far you can stray from your strategic allocation yeah so we've published tolerance bands around each asset class which we share with all of our clients so every client that goes through the risk profiling exercise will be given a risk level one to ten and then within that, around the 11 different asset classes, there will be tolerance bands, which, we'll, which, we're, you know, which we don't deviate from. And if we were to, that would mean contacting the clients. And that's not something we've done or, or that we intend to really be an extreme event. So typically a tolerance band would be about 10% around a neutral target for an asset class. We think we're pretty mature in the cycle at the moment. And we think, as we are today, that asset markets have got a bit ahead of themselves in terms of where their prices are. To give a bit of context around that, maybe to separate out bonds and equities, core bonds we think are screamingly expensive and there's very little value to be had from owning those assets at these levels. And in fact, there's actually a lot of downside which is um, on the cards for those assets. Within equity markets, we think they're somewhat expensive, but it's really the price action 
has made for us taking profits in that asset class recently. You mentioned their core bonds being very expensive and you have no UK gilts in your balanced or growth portfolios. Why yeah. is that? Is that just that on that valuation? It's almost purely on the valuation grounds. So you know, a UK gilt at the moment is paying you around 1.2%. So if you set that alongside inflation in the UK, which is running at just over 2.5%, you're, if you like, signing up for a negative rate of return you know, of, of over 1% a year, which in itself is very unappetizing. But really, the reason that we don't own UK gilts is actually the, the big downside that we think is, is there from what's meant to be a safe asset. So if market interest rates were to get back to more neutral levels, we think that there'd be a 20% capital hit to owning these gilt funds. You know, that for us is not something that we want to entertain for what's meant to be a defensive allocation as part of the portfolio. These assets have, we think, been overbought on the expectation that we're going to be in a deflationary environment and rates are never going to move from the level of 0.25% that the bank's got at the moment. On a very basic level, how do you evaluate bonds in terms of their potential risk and reward? What metrics are you using when you look at them? On a sort of headline level, we want to know what yield is it paying? And if it's a government bond, it's what, what, what yield it's paying, and then how sensitive it is to interest rates. And then where do we think the direction of interest rates are? So, you know, if we look at UK government bonds, I mentioned 1.2% or so, we think interest rates on the balance of, of risks are probably headed upwards, which makes us not want to own them. As we get into to credit investments, which are you know, slightly higher yielding debt, which is issued by companies, we're looking at how much spread or how much extra return is available over and above what you'd get from buying a you know, risk-free and in inverted commas government bond. And then we'll also look at size and country and currency risk as well. So really interest rate risk, credit risk and currency risk. Currently, you actually have a fairly high weighting, don't you, to investment grade credit and also to high yield bonds. So why is that? Is that a spread based decision or just that it's the kind of most relatively appealing area? It's both. So in absolute terms, you know, in terms of do we think they're going to make positive returns? We definitely do. And the investment grade debt that we own has very little exposure to interest rates. So a lot of it is asset-backed securities. And this is something that often puts investors' backs up because it immediately makes them think of the 2007 crisis crisis with mortgage debt, of course, which was residential mortgage-backed securities. So we like these assets. Um, I can come back to why in particular. And high yield, we've sold down our core high yield and own none of that at the moment. But what we do own is some quite specific high-yield debt, which is US-based, has very low expense exposure to interest rates, tends to be smaller companies, and is bought in the secondary market. So it's debt that's well within its maturity cycle, so you have low exposure to interest rates. High-yield in itself, I should have thrown in, there's another valuation metric that we look at here, which is default adjusted yield. When we look at that on the balance of things within core high-yield, that also at the moment is looking pretty expensive, which is why we own slightly more esoteric or kind of quirky high yield, which is US-based smaller company. How much international diversification do you think investors need to have? How much attention should they be paying to, say, the MSCI world benchmark and thinking, I need to replicate this in my portfolio? I think a kind of market 
cap weighted approach is a very good way of investing globally and the MSCI world represents that very well. Then within that, I think there's a lot of value to be gained from taking tactical tilts away from a naive MSCI allocation, which is going to have, you know, on a developed basis, about 60% in the US, if we include emerging, you know, over 50% in the US. So there's a lot of value to be gained from making tilts away from, from those allocations, but it's a good starting point. Okay. And talking of tilts, I want to have a look at how you use passive funds. Now, do you have guidelines or rules for where you use active and where you use passive? No, we 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 don't have explicit rules. We tend to like to use active because we, we believe in active management and the ability to add value there. But we do use passive where we think either the you know opportunity for active managers isn't as good or we're trying to fill in a gap that active managers aren't delivering on. So, for instance, within our UK allocation at the moment, we have an allocation to a passive fund, and that's principally because we want exposure to resources, miners, and banks, and we struggle to see active managers buying into that area of the market. So you, you're using it to get a value tilt in the UK then at the moment? Yeah, yeah. And are there kind of other reasons that you might use passives or particular markets you think they work well in at the moment? I think they work very well in an environment when you have all boats rising and not much differentiation in stock and sector performance, which is kind of the environment that we've been in for you know, certainly the early part of that QE-driven ramp-up in markets that is, you know, starting in March 2009. Now, as you know, the Federal Reserve start to stop reinvesting their balance sheet and maybe get some rate rises coming from central bankers, you are starting to see more stock dispersion. And that's an environment which is going to feed more and play more into the hands of active managers. So does that mean that you've been shifting away or will be shifting away from passive and more towards active in markets like the US, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in, in the US at the moment, we're tilted towards growth managers as we think that sort of trade trade and trend is, is going to run a bit more. And, you know, one of the, the, the next sort of steps that we're looking to, to move towards is a more of a value tilt across the portfolios. But for that to kind of deliver, what we really need to see is a pickup in some of the kind of in inflation indicators, which we saw a little bit of with the kind of Trump reflation trade late last year, early part of this year, but it's kind of dissipated a bit and we're still waiting to see those indicators tick up a bit. What are the kind of metrics you use to evaluate funds? Yeah, so always an interesting point. So what we do is we start with a screen, again, getting that quant process to work for screening out various factors. So it might be value, growth, large, small, within equities, and then different levels of credit exposure or interest rate exposure within fixed income. And that gives us a kind of starting point, if you like, for asset classes, uh, managers within all the sub-asset classes. And then we'll do a due diligence process, meet the managers, and do some of our own analytics on the fund to get comfortable with owning them. And then finally, you know, cost is absolutely key. And we want to be buying the manager or the passive at a fund which is uh, at a level which is going to be attractive. Finally, how do you manage currency risk? Do you hedge positions? Do you use derivatives? We're fairly active in the, in the currency field, but we don't use derivatives ourselves because you know we're, we're running private client portfolios. We've got over 2,000 private client portfolios that we're running, so we can't be running kind of currency forwards ourselves. 
So what we do is we work closely with investment managers and we'll ask them to put on head share classes if we think we want to target a particular currency exposure or if we want to alter our own exposure. Um, And that's something that we've done quite a lot over the last year or so, particularly hedging back to sterling after the big drop-off in the pound that we saw post the vote to to leave the EU back in June last year. Thanks, Rory. That's all we've got time for. So if you want to find out more about building the perfect portfolio, head to the website. And if you haven't already, make sure to listen to part one of our Ideal Portfolio podcast with James Norrington, who talks about strategic asset allocation and how to manage risk in your portfolio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 